Hi, welcome to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm Eric Dawson. Today I'm joined by Katie Ornstein, the founder of the Op-Ed Project. Katie started the organization in 2008 to help boost the number of women whose writing appeared in the nation's op-ed pages and allowing them to influence the national conversation. Katie, welcome. Hi, thanks. Great to be here. I was uh, part of the interview panel uh, back in 2008 when you came with, with this idea, and mm-hmm. it, was, it was just really an idea at that point. And um, I found you so moving, not only because of this really smart analysis of the problem, but this intensity that you had about the solution, um, the level of integrity, the level of care, this really deep sense of purpose about how we tell truths that aren't often heard. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your relationship with the truth and kind of where that, that love of story and uh, creation and unveiling came from. <laughs> Do you want to start with a small question? You know, I answer, I I think about this kind of question all the time, and I answer it differently in different periods of my life. But um, I've had the chance to think a lot about why I care about this and where where in my own life it shows up. And I grew up in a family, a very loving family, where no one ever agreed on anything. And not just my nuclear family, but my my broader family. It's a a very intermingled, very... um, family like with lots of different people from lots of different kinds of backgrounds and places and people just don't agree on a lot of stuff and I found myself wondering why are why is that version of the story the one in my own family in my broader family in my community why is that story the one that we're going with and then I I found that to be true in um, in school when I went to school and I studied folklore and in retrospect it feels like I've been studying the same kinds of things my entire life, but at that age, I wouldn't have known that. I, I studied folklore, and, um, I, and in particular, I read a folklorist named Zora Neale Hurston, who, at the time, this is what I thought. I thought, that's a professional adventurist. Like, the only person I had in my imagination who who made a living um, studying story and truth, and also lying all the time. By the way, mm-hmm. like she, all she, she, she was like, you know, her stories are, are also based on like understanding, um, <laughs> like what the truth is, and also how to lie. But um, she had written a book about Haiti and Jamaica. She'd gone to Haiti and Jamaica, and so I thought that's what I would do when I graduated. And so I got a grant to go there. And when I when I landed in Haiti, uh, a coup broke out. While you were there, while I was there, yeah. or I, I had been in and out, so I was actually out of the country at the at that moment, but like the week prior. But I spent the better part of um, my twenties working, living in and or working on Haiti. It, it became um, instead of studying folklore there, I began writing about what was happening in the streets, and eventually I became what some people called a journalist, although I never called myself that. Why not? Maybe I did here and there because it for shorthand, but mostly um, because, first of all, I, I didn't do regular beat reporting, but m- maybe more so because folklore and journalism are such different fields, and they and the tr- the training and experience I had, they they don't trust each other, and they worship different gods. Journalism worships the god of objectivity, and folklore worships the god of virgin versions. Like there's infinite versions of any given event. One of the very first pieces that I wrote in Haiti 
is so close to what I, I think and do today. And it's and, and this is what happened. Immediately after the coup, there was um, like a lot of media coverage of what had happened in Haiti. And in the United States, the media coverage was very, very different from what was happening in Haiti. And, and so in that moment, 100,000 Haitians marched across the Brooklyn Bridge to protest the New York Times, which they called the voice of the State Department. And so that was widely reported, but no one bothered to see if it was true. And I thought to myself, well, that's that's something we could we could check pretty easily. And so I went and looked at the last two or however many weeks of New York Times reporting, and I just checked and counted their sources and column inches. And I, it, I found, well, they have a point. The, the overwhelming majority of sources were either U.S. diplomats or state or or foreign diplomats, but um, very few of the sources were majority class Haitians. And the that affected the quote-unquote facts that were being reported quite a lot. And it's, it's so similar to, you know, the analysis that I have of how a story gets cold, told today. And what's the process of telling stories across lines of difference, both in terms of the stories that are being told, who the audience is? I think about the divisiveness within which we're living right now um, and maybe have always been living in. How do you think about crossing those lines as a storyteller, as a, as a researcher, as a convener? Mm, yeah. Well, I think we're in a moment where we, we really need the skills to be able to speak not just more broadly, but to each other better. I mean, th- I think that's very clear right now. And so what what are those skills or awarenesses? You know, some of us have been developing stories for so long, and the way that our, our brains work is that we don't remember information equally. We remember information that fits the story we already believe, and we all, it's called confirmation bias, and then we all, we, and select, selective recall. And so the longer we have a story set in our mind, the longer the period of time we have to collect information that buttresses it and buttresses it until it no longer feels like a story or a perspective, it just feels like the truth, capital T. And once we're in that place, it's, it's really difficult to speak to people who don't have the same story or the same frame. And we, we just, because we've been collecting different facts, quote unquote, for a long time. I, I think um, I, I need to say I'm not advocating alternate facts or making shit up. Right. Right. I think that's a, this is a different and very important uh, issue as well. But if we're talking about like w- within an integrity of, of information, we can still collect different information. Right. And if we've been collecting different information for a long time, then it makes two people who've been collecting very different information, you know, stare across the aisle at each other and think they're crazy. That's a, a powerful insight. And, and walk us through how that insight turned into the op-ed project. So this is uh, 10 years ago or even a little bit more now. And I, I have been writing about so many things in my life, but I've, I've very often been writing about these kinds of issues, maybe even before I realized it. I spent 10 years working and writing on, the, you know, massacres, um, torture, assassination, rape. And then I wrote about media, women, popular culture. I wrote a book on fairy tales. These things feel so different. But if you look back, um, if I look back, particularly from, from where I'm sitting now, I can see that most of what I am interested in and in writing about and thinking about is where there are divergent versions 
of the truth, where there are different stories and how the stories reflect different truths, pretty much always. Um, and I didn't really imagine I would start an organization, but a very particular thing happened um, that sort of changed the course of my, my focus. And what happened is there was a big debate that broke out um, over the course of a year and, and a half. And, and it was a debate about why we hear so few voices and especially so few women's voices in leadership. And initially it, it was sparked by Larry Summers, who was then the president of Harvard University. And he wondered why there were so few women in higher math and science. Could it be that women lacked the biological aptitude? Which pissed a lot of people off and sparked a lot of parallel debates. And one of those big parallel debates was about the media and about the nation's op-ed pages, which um, for those who, who know or participate, these are the pages, they're, they're not written by journalists. They're written by experts, um, broadly defined. So the function of these um, outlets or forums is to vet ideas, expert ideas, and expert individuals. They're gatekeepers. Yes, they're gatekeepers for ideas. So the ideas that we're going to follow into the future and invest in, and the people as well, the people who will rise, are greatly predicted by who appears in these kinds of pages. And um, the, there was a big debate because they were overwhelmingly male. Um, so there's a big debate around gender at the time. and. Uh, a syndicated columnist accused the LA Times of sexism and started a very big fight. They were running, I think, about 90% of their columns by men then. And then Maureen Dowd, who was the only uh, female columnist at the New York Times in that year, said, no, it's socialization. Women don't want to be attacked. And then uh, at the Washington Post, Ann Applebaum was the only woman columnist in that year. And she, she said something to the effect of, um, why do I need to waste a column on my female status? And I watched that debate, and I and this is what went through my mind. Um, first of all, I I knew the enormous power of those outlets, forums, because I myself had been participating, and as a very young person, I had been speaking at universities and on television, and had been to the White House and had worked for two Haitian presidents. So I had like a real profound knowledge of how I had gotten there. And second of all. Because I was weighing, because I've written for some of those outlets, I knew that there was something really profoundly obvious that no one was seemed to be talking about, and it's it's this that the single greatest predictor of who gets published is who pitches, and the pitching ratios were shockingly skewed. Um, just to give one data point, at the at the year that we were founded in 2008, the Washington Post did a survey a five-month study of their submission pitching pool, and they found that nine out of 10 pitches came from men. And that was exactly wow. the ratio that they published, nine out of 10. And so it's- So just, it's a pipeline issue. Yeah, and it, it just occurred to me, you know, like isn't the obvious solution to get more smart women pitching? I mean, could be biology, could be sexism, could be the weather. I mean, how Build do you the know? Pipeline. Yeah, you, you can't know unless you're, you can't win a game unless you're playing. And um, this game is called History. Uh, the Washington Post, literally, forever and ever, its tagline was a rough draft of history. And, um, and it's not rocket science. You know, you don't have to be Hemingway. You, you do need to know something. You need, you need to know something of value. You need to be the right person at the right time. But you don't need to be the only person in the world. That's Katie Ornstein, the founder of the Op-Ed Project an organization working to get more voices represented on the country's op-ed pages. I'm Eric Dawson, the host of On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green, and we'll be back after a short break. 
On Course is produced by Echoing Green. For more than 30 years, Echoing Green has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. We find emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and set them on a path to lifelong impact. Our community of almost 1,000 social innovators includes past fellows like First Lady Michelle Obama, major public figures like Van Jones, and the founders of organizations like Teach for America and One Acre Fund. Built and refined over 30 years, our process discovers tomorrow's leaders today. Join us as we support a new generation of social impact leaders. Learn more at echoinggreen.org. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and this is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking to Katie Ornstein, the founder of the Op-Ed Project. Did you experience in, in your research and work, maybe your own life, that, that women had have a harder time claiming their expertise? Yeah. You know, the starting hypothesis has been stunningly effective. It, it, we, it, it is easy to show that increasing the pitching ratio has increased the ratio of women's voice. And, um, and by the way, the participation of women in these pages has leapt forward in the last 10 years, at least 10 percentage points. But how we got there is, and, and the questions we, we're asking, that's a different matter. And I think really quickly, um, within months of founding, we realized that it's not about writing. And by the way, if you think it's about writing, just take a look at college entrance exams where women consistently score higher right. than men. So if you think it's about writing, well, you're, you're, you're misdiagnosing the problem. What we found is that we had a, an initial experiment where we just tried to get women, I tried to get women to very quickly state their expertise without caveats and directly and compellingly. And it was such a, a fraught and vexing experience, like so in, in, enormously difficult to get. At the time, it was we were focusing on women. Obviously, we're focusing on a lot more now. But to get my smart female colleagues and friends and peers to say what they knew without hemming and hawing was so in- extraordinarily difficult that we began to realize, um, well, this is this is what's why it's so important. The fact that it's so difficult is why it's so important. What's going on? And I think that has been the question of the last 10 years, which is we live in a world where some people ask for so much more with so much more frequency and success than others. So why is that and what's the carbon offset? And what have you discovered? <laughs> what's the answer? I think um, that's a big question. So we, we run programs all across the globe, mostly in the United States, though. And the, the nature of our programs, the, what we're trying to do is create scenarios where we can understand how credibility and expertise work and how the culture of knowledge works and works unfairly and how we can expose things that are well-researched but expose them in people's real-life experience in the moment. And then once we can expose how it's working, how do we find a way through with integrity? So I think so much of what happens in the world is that the, the people in power export the problem or ascribe the problem to the people who are most impacted by it. And so it's really hard to get out from under the problem if you think you're the problem. Right. If instead you understand that the problem is the culture we live in, then you can figure out strategies and workarounds. I mean, there's also some really clear-sighted, like, um, you have to walk into that like with open eyes because it's it's not an even terrain. It's not a fair terrain, but fair or not, 
you, you can either choose to find a way through it or not, but, it, but it's not going to be fair either way. So, so take us into, into a workshop. Um, who's in the room, how do they get there, and, and what do they experience? Mm -hmm. Well, we do many different kinds of, of workshops and programs. Um, and anything from like a 90-minute a sort of large group interactive experience to multi-year fellowships. Probably the two most important initiatives we run are kind of mirror images of each other. One is called Right to Change the World, and it's a day-long workshop that we do over and over again in a different city um, every um, every weekend. And the way I think of that initiative is trying to change who writes history from the ground up because it's open to absolutely everyone of any identity, position, or persuasion, but with a centering of the people who are most marginalized, including women of all backgrounds, and regardless of means. So we have a model where uh, we can, every, every workshop's designed to cost out without profit or loss while scholarshiping at least a third of the room. And then on the other initiative on the mirror, uh, I think of it as a mirror image, is our Public Voices Fellowship Initiative. And um, I think of that as changing history at the highest levels. So we're targeting people who are influencers of influencers, who can potentially be role models for many people, who maybe have the potential to change cultural narrative, like really change cultural narrative at, at like in a time span that's very quick with the right investment. So we're focusing on uh, scholars, um, activists who are heads of organizations. Our primary partners there are universities, foundations, and uh, community nonprofits. And a good example there is um, one of our fellows, uh, Carol Anderson, is a, a professor at Emory. And I should say a, a venerable professor, a, a historian who's, who focuses on race, um, voting, enfranchisement, who had already published several books but in the fellowship, she wrote an op-ed. Um, the year was what had happened in Ferguson. And the, the op-ed she wrote, um, the premise of which was that Ferguson was not about black rage, but about white rage and backlash. And it went, ran in the Washington Post and became the most uh, read article of the year. And it resulted in a bidding war for her book white, called White Rage, which won, it came out in 2017, won many awards, um, was sections of it, I think Dick Durbin read sections of it out to Jeff Sessions during the Sessions confirmation hearings on the Senate uh -huh. floor. And she's now in the midst of publishing another, she's published another book. She has several more coming out. It's been made into a YA novel and a kid's book. We get calls from parents saying that they read sections of that book to their children uh, as bedtime reading. And I think about what, what the history, you know, I think back to when I was in college and I think how will the history book books that I read then be updated, um, you know, in the next few years. And I think, well, they'll surely be updated with this. That's changed, like, you can change history, but if you can invest in the right people, you know, this is a person who already had deep knowledge, but it had not penetrated the public consciousness the way it's doing now. So how does that process work, both, both with, with someone like, like the, the professor and author, and also uh, a woman who's just, or a person who's just coming into a workshop for the first time, may, maybe hasn't written a lot. H how do you, how do you open up that opportunity? Um, what, what does that look like? Well, we run different la layers of curriculum and programs with different strategies, and we're always trying to pair, a, like a conceptual thinking process with action, married to action. But the, what we do in the rooms, we're, we're not actually focusing on writing at all, um, or on media, or on 
communication, except if you broadly, if you, except in the sense of in its most broadest definition, what we're mostly focusing on is how you understand power and voice in a world where it's very unevenly distributed. So um, if you were to walk into our, our workshop, the very first layer that we do, we start with a series of question, big questions that are unanswerable. And when I say unanswerable, I don't mean that an individual can't come up with their own answer, but there's no right answer. There's no perfect answer. So it, it, it gives everyone an immediate sense that we're going to be grappling with ambiguous um, tensions and truths. You know, tension does not mean compression. It means the pulling apart of ties that bind. So we're exploring things that are connected, um, connected but not always in harmony. And then after we do that, um, this is in, in if you are coming through the front door with us, not years down the line. But the, the next thing that we do in our core workshops is we do an experiment in how credibility works and works unfairly. And it's a live group experiment. We, we set a game in motion. And to play the game, you need to define yourself as an expert. And how you do that is up to you. And we, we, we set it up as a game um, in order to give people elements of strategy, choice, competition, agency, um, not because it's fun. Right. I, I used to I used to feel like I always needed to explain that, but now since the Game of Thrones and the Hunger Games, I feel like everyone knows games don't have to be fun. There's a whole new model for yeah. gameplay. <laughs> I mean, some, some people think the game is fun, but most people find it like, you know, just vexing, difficult. It's, it's an enormously difficult. And the reason is because so many of us carry into, into our rooms, people are carrying um, stories that are in conflict with their own power, deep conflict um, with their own sense of themselves as competent, as knowing things. You know, some of us have been given permission to know things, quote unquote, our entire life. And if we, and, and for some people, that, that leads to permission and high reward and low risk for claiming knowledge even that we don't have. Right. Um, but for other people, for many, many other people, we've not been given permission to know things. And it's, it's pervasive, insidious, it surrounds us, and the risk is high and the reward is low, and, and, and eventually the stories get internalized. And you forget that it's a racket. You know, you really genuinely don't believe you know stuff that you know. So um, I want to separate two, two pieces of what you're building. Um, so one is voice, the, the ability to tell one's story. And, and, and claim credibility. Uh, the other is tone, the, the way in which we tell stories. And there's a lot of conversation now, particularly for women, people of color, around this idea of likability, mm -hmm. right? Was Hillary Clinton likable enough? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so how do you make sense of that aspect of storytelling, um, about the tone, likability, what messages people can hear from, mm -hmm. from whom? Women are playing a really different game from men, and women of color especially. When, when we talk about likability. Um, it makes me think of that Fred Astaire, Ginger Robert Rogers quote, you know, Ginger Rogers did everything she did, but he did, but in heels and backwards. So if, it, you know, you think you're playing the same game, but you're really not, because if you're trying to assert leadership and competency in the world, uh, for men, competency and likability positively correspond. And for women, competency and likability negatively correspond. There's been some really interesting research around this. Uh, Sheryl Sandberg cites it in her book. There's some of it's come out of um, different places. So what that means is sometimes people say, well, you know, likability is just a popularity contest. Like, you know, who cares? But no, that's 
in, in fact, likability is about being able to get stuff done. If you're not liked and you can't get stuff done or you can't get elected, um, Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, um, AOC, maybe, although I feel like she's, you know, you know, let's see what happens. She's doing some interesting things. It's, it's really hard um, to rise in power if you're not liked. And yet, and yet, if you can't assert competency, it's also hard to rise in power. Um, one of the ways this plays out, um, one experiment we do is around what we call shiny baubles, which is our term for your most impressive credentials. The credentials that if you say out loud, people will, you know, you, if you pull them out of your pocket, everyone will go, ooh, let me look, let me look, can I see? And we have found that some people share their shiny baubles easily, readily, and abundantly. And other people, and overwhelmingly women and people of color, don't share their shiny baubles with anywhere near the frequency um, for a variety of reasons. But one of them is the reason that you just raised, which is, um, will I be perceived as unlikable? Will I look like I'm bragging? And there's a real penalty for that. That's not just, a, oh, I want to be liked. You know, oh, I want to be liked. It's not that. It's, I mean, maybe it's that. I mean, I think we all do want to be liked. But, but beyond that, it's an awareness that you can't get things done if you're not liked. So the penalty for uh, asserting competency is, is a pretty steep one. And so how, do you, how are you going to play that? And in, in your workshops, how do you help people make sense of that, both, both understanding the rules of the game and also how to change the game? And, and, and how do we balance that? We don't offer uh, explicit answers most of the time, except in rare cases where there really are. And usually that's when somebody's asking a question of one of our journalist facilitators that's very specific to the world of how does this work in journalism. But when we're talking about power, what we're really trying to do is reframe the issue so that the person who's impacted by the the, in, the unfairness is no longer seeing themselves as the, as the source of the problem. And then can we um, do a reset? Can we set a moral compass aimed at what we think matters rather than what we think the, um, the penalty or the judgment might be. That's Katie Ornstein, the founder of the Op-Ed Project. I'm Eric Dawson, the host of On Course, the podcast from Green Green. And we'll be back with more after a break. On Course is presented as part of the Inclusive Leadership Initiative. With support from the City Foundation, Echoing Green launched the Inclusive Leadership Initiative to expand its support of leaders that represent and work with communities of color. Together, Echoing Green and the City Foundation are supporting the next generation of leaders who are helping create economic and social opportunities for young women and men of color across the United States. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and this is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking to Katie Ornstein, the founder of the Op-Ed Project. I want to go back to your dining room table, your family dinners as a child, and um, I want to talk about disagreement and love and, and how those two things can sit. And, and, and can they sit in public spaces now? Can we disagree with one another and love one another? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I, I feel like I should be able to say yes, of course, but um, I think it. I think it's different from person to person and moment to moment. What I what I see a lot of in the last two years is we we talk a lot about empathy and the power of empathy and respect, and 
yet we weren't really challenged in our thinking the way we have been in the last two years where I see in our rooms people ask, why should I show empathy and respect for someone who denies my humanity? These are This is the sort of extreme conversation that has emerged. And to me, I think, I don't know, should you? I, I, I don't think I would. So I think that empathy can be understood um, differently from agreement or endorsement. I think it can be understood as curiosity into our fellow human, human beings. And that, that helps me um, think about how we can find ways through. Um, but I also think this, this speaks to what I was saying earlier about unanswerable questions. I think a lot of people would like there to be an easy answer to that question. And I think that that's too easy. I think it's, um, it's pat. In, in actuality, I think it's more true to say that um, we have competing values. Um, and each of them is a value. It's not that the, we either have more value or less value. We're, you know, like we're either doing good at empathy or bad at empathy. It's more like there's competing values. And the, va the way I see those competing values are standing for what we believe in and standing for a diversity of belief in a world where there's diversity. And those two things are in tension with each other. We, you cannot really believe in authentic diversity if you don't believe in allowing different values and experiences in. Otherwise, you're really just talking about cosmetic diversity. So it means um, allowing ideas that you disagree with into your inner circle, but how much disagreement do you want to let in? I love that stance of curiosity, and I think about the, the ways we often conflate uh, understanding with condoning, mm -hmm. that, that we can see and hear and understand and still disagree. Mm -hmm. and, and it sounds like that was, a, that was a core part of what you grew up with. And, and that you continue to nurture today. And so I'm curious about your journey as a leader. Where have you been over the past 10 years and, and where are you going? You know, I very early on, I, I wanted to be involved in things that were bigger than myself. And my, my primary fear when I was younger was that would I, would I have enough to, of value? Would I have something to contribute? Like, would I be val able to be valuable? Would I find something that I could do that would be worth worth it? Um, and then, that was an early fear. And then I had some experiences, um, like kind of into my adulthood. Uh, I taught literacy, and that the act of, of the, doing that day in, day out um, began to like make me clear that I did have things of value. They didn't have to be grandiose. It, it also made me feel that it was no longer, uh, it, was, it no longer felt like a right, it felt like a responsibility. That was a big shift for me. And I think that I'm trying to take that same like DNA of that thinking and apply it to bigger and bigger things. But the bigger the things get, the more complicated they get too. So it's this constant dance of trying to be bold and humble. And like, it's a, it is definitely, it feels like you get whacked around a lot because you don't, you know, I, I feel like there are equal sins to, to be too timid when you have something in, like that you can contribute, that's, and to be too um, arrogant is, are, are equally dangerous. And I, I, I really do feel like that's like pretty much where I am right now, like, like a, a state of trying to navigate that with, like I want to say I, my, to navigate it with grace, but I, I don't know what the word grace means. I mean, it's just messy. And yet um, to not do it feels even messier. There's a way in which um, 
you're working to thread a needle both within yourself and within the world of honoring where it is right now and trying to change it. Um, what is surprising you right now about the world? Hmm. I don't know how to answer that. I, I feel um, like profoundly disappointed with some of the, and surprised by some of the large, like macro political directions that, that we're in. I didn't imagine that um, 10 years ago. And some of the things I feel like we're experiencing in the United States remind me of things that I experienced in Haiti that, that folks in the United States criticized so so brazenly. So that's surprising to me and maybe makes me aware of a huge blind spot I was walking around with. What do you see as the role of those in power in dismantling this particular inequality of access? Mm -hmm. So folks who are um, part of majority cultures or part of um, systems of influence and access, what, what message do you have? Sometimes people ask this um, in a small way, and I think the way I would answer it in a small way, like they say, we have a conference, and it's all, like, there's so many white men. Whose responsibility is it to, to like, fix that? And I, I say, well, it depends on who I'm speaking to. If I'm speaking to the conference organizers or the bookers, I say it's 100% your responsibility. And if I'm speaking to the women and people of color who want in, I say it's 100% your responsibility. <laughs> I feel like we all have to have 100% in um, to fix some of the power imbalances. And I, I don't feel that's fair, but I feel that's necessary. Um, sometimes people said to me at the very, very beginning of, of Op-Ed Project, because we're work, we were, you know, we're working with all kinds of communities now, but the, the inception point of the conversation was, was about women. And sometimes people said to me, isn't it really the job of, say, the New York Times or CNN or whatever? Like, why are you telling women they have to do all this work? And I would say, I'm not saying that it's fair. I'm just saying this is much more pragmatic. Let's, like, let's do both. But also, you know, I mean, I remember um, Frederick Douglass said, the limits of tyrants are determined by the endurance of those whom they oppress. And, you know, like, if we don't... Um, proactively ask, you know, uh, asking, raising our hands, getting in the mix. If we're not playing, like, how will we know what we're up against? Can't win if you don't play. So I, I would say, yeah, you can't win if you don't play. I, I would say it depends the answer to that question, what, what is the role of those in power is 100%, but it's also 100% on those of us who aren't. Um, so, Katie, I'm, I'm not going to go through a, a speed round where I'm going to ask you a series of questions and in a word, phrase, sentence, uh, maybe a few, one, one semicolon uh, per answer. <laughs> um, if you could sit down with yourself 20 years ago, what would you want to talk about? What, what I want the end goal to be. Start, like, the end is determined in the beginning. If you could sit down with yourself 20 years from now, what would you want to know? Of the things that really truly mattered, um, where where should I breathe more energy into them, and where am I not breathing enough? Tell me about the last time you experienced wonder. Mm, I had some last night. Okay, I was in Chicago last week, and it was just like this lovely day. We had a room of people. I don't often, I don't, I don't see the rooms that we get anywhere near as often as I used to, and it was this room of people that were brought together, not entirely by chance, but a lot of chance. And they were 
riffing off each other with so much intelligence and love. And I, I just, I just was like, how did, how does this happen? Like, What's your ideal Saturday like? Well, it's, this is more Sunday, but run, brunch, paper, lying on the sofa. If I had a dog, I would throw a dog in there with my partner. I have uh, six kids in my house right now between the ages of four and 16. What's the one piece of advice you would give them to join you in this justice work? If you can find where you're valuable to others, you'll understand your value to yourself. So find that. For those listening and inspired by your work, where can they go to learn more? <laughs> www.theopedproject.org. Um, Katie, uh, and I, I don't use this word lightly, you are a hero of mine, and you always have been since we mm. met over a decade mm. ago. And, and, and what I love most about you as a leader and the work that you're doing is that you are building a, a, a wider circle. You're making the circle bigger and bigger, uh, which is the key to all of our salvation. And that you're able to do that in ways that are incredibly intimate and small and delicate and huge and powerful and transformative. And, and the fact that you can work on, on both ends of that spectrum while inviting people in um, is a gift. Um, so thank you uh, for being you. I appreciate that a lot. To find out more about Echoing Green, go to echoinggreen.org. Don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. I'm Eric Dawson. Stay on course. <laughs>